For those who don't know me, I'm Sid Druin. I'm the campus minister for this thing called RUF, the Fort University Fellowship at New Mexico State. Um, we're a Christian campus ministry that exists uh, for several reasons. Who we exist for? We exist for the convinced and the unconvinced, for the believer and the unbeliever, for the green chili lover and those who prefer red. Um, the student who's about to graduate in a few weeks and is looking to find a real job, and the student who's not sure graduation will ever really happen for them. Both are welcome. And REF exists for those who feel like they have more doubts than faith, and for those who feel like they have more faith than doubts on most days. So, the other, what I'm trying to say basically is whoever you are, wherever you are, thank you so much for coming. We appreciate you coming. I hope you feel welcomed. Um, we hope that RUF gets to know you and you get to know RUF. Um, a good way that that happens is if you've been to RUF before, talk to the person next to you or near you. Ask them some life questions. Um, I don't need to give you some sort of like speed dating crib sheet, do I? Uh, just talk about life together. Um, you know, their, their, your, their life, your life, the meaning of life. Uh, you know, small things. Um, and if you're new, uh, the pressure's off, okay? We're just glad you're here. Um, we hope you feel welcome. We hope you meet, meet a few new people. Thanks for coming. All right, some announcements. Uh, there's a sign-up over yonder, and I'll just, yeah, thank you. Um, and this is a good way to get involved. All right, if you sign up already, please don't sign up again, uh, unless you want several emails. Also, um, we have a Facebook site, NMSURUF, so take a look at that. These are just good ways to keep involved, to keep connected with some of the things that we're doing uh, in our UF. Other thoughts, t-shirts. I mean, it's been sad before, but why not buy one? I mean, or two or five. Um, look, let's just talk about three-quarter leg sleeves, which I think is, some of you think that's a great feature, some of you are thrown off by that. Um, look, I mean, for, first of all, it's very helpful for softball, because we all know the size of the ball and the metal bat colliding together causes maybe some elbow pain, but this keeps warm. Uh, uh, on the cool nights, on the cool nights, your elbows are always warm. But, but when your sweaty forearms exposed to the night air, isn't that beautiful? Uh, just you know, some features that you didn't think about. Um, next year, we're doing Under Armour sponsorship. Just uh, saying. So also, there's a there's there's sort of a metaphor about three quarter length sleeves that's sort of packed into the. It's about our spiritual journey in Jesus. Um, we're already past the short sleeve, but we're not yet at the full length sleeve. <laughs> so, you know, sin is still with us, so uh, look for a hooded sweatshirt. Um, so, tonight, uh, that's enough of that. We've got a great privilege tonight. Uh, we've got a guest preacher. Uh, Patrick Tabana. Uh, so, I, but before I introduce him, let me start with an apology. For those of you here last, last week, I left you with a cliffhanger. I had, like, several times now. <laughs> so, so, I said I was going to talk about slavery last week. I'm not talking about it again this week. But I will talk about it next week, okay? 
So, I, so you're going to ask yourselves right now, maybe you're in the fetal position late at night, and early in the morning, you're saying, Sid, is the Bible still right when it seems so wrong about slavery? Uh, we're going to address that next week. Again, I know it's another false start, but here's a teaser. Maybe you're, what you think about the Bible isn't all that right. Um, and we'll talk more about maybe the Bible isn't saying what you think it's saying about slavery. Okay? And we'll talk about that next Tuesday. But let me talk about Patrick. I'm going to vouch for him for a second. We're excited to have him. He's a good friend of mine, so I'm biased. But I will say that he's patient and kind and thoughtful. Um, and he's a wonderful pastor. He regularly preaches and ministers at a church across University Avenue behind Milagro and McDonald's called University Presbyterian Church. Um, it's a church that me and my family love. I would personally recommend you try and plug if you're looking for a church home still. If you haven't found a place to plug in, come check that out at University Press. UPC, University Press, University Presbyterian Church. You can call it everyone, okay? Um, I just also, this is a time when, um, not only does my voice crack, but I also get to talk to you about um, what RUF is. And the reason that I'm telling you to go try to find a church is that RUF is not the church, the local church. It's an extension or a mission of the church. Okay. That's meant, that means that we're not here to replace the church, we're here to supplement the church. Okay. To meet college students where you live, where you work, where you study. So we're glad you're here. Please keep coming. We love that you're coming. But we also want to encourage you to get plugged in for the long term at local church. Local churches can offer good things that RUF can't and won't offer. Like uh, people over your age and under your age. Families, the Lord's Supper, uh, baptism, we're not going to do that in a large group. Uh, and so please consider doing those. Those things are where God promises to show up. And we want God to show up because that's the only promise that really is worth living for. So without turning this introduction to a sermon about God showing up, let me introduce Patrick. Come on up. Share God's words with us. We're excited. Give her, you know, give her wow. Thanks, guys. Um, I was actually a little worried, Sid, where that was going to go. When somebody starts by saying they're going to introduce you and immediately says, but first I need to apologize. <laughs> it's normally when you're ready to crawl into your chair. So I'm glad you didn't say, I'm sorry that you have to sit here and listen to Patrick for the next three hours. <laughs> but you know. Um, I will speak for three hours, but you're welcome to leave whenever you want. <laughs> um, I am a pastor, just uh, that, that way, if I get, get my bearings right, somewhere uh, on the other side of university. Um, how many of you guys know Milagros? Love Milagros, go to Milagros. Wow, some of you were like, definitely boycotting that. Yeah, I was thinking about you, Ozzy. Our church is right back there behind Milagros, and... Uh, uh, we're called University Presbyterian Church, and our real hope is that we're not just a church that's near the university, uh, but that we're a church that's for the university. And so I would encourage you guys uh, to come to join us for worship. Um, there's always families that are looking to take college students home. So skip breakfast, show up hungry, let your tummy rumble all through the sermon, and you'll be ready. Uh, to go home and get a home-cooked meal. So, um, but along with being a pastor, you, 
Well, you guys know a little bit about me. I've been out here for about four and a half years, and uh, I'm married to the most wonderful woman in the world. She's not here tonight. Her name's Nicole. Some of you know her. Um, and I have two little kids. Um, not quite as good as Sid. They're not twins. <laughs> but they're just about as close as you get. Uh, they're both adopted, and they're only eight months apart. So... Presently, I have a two-year-old and a three-year-old, but for a good section, portion of the year, we have twins. Um, so from August to December, they get to be the same age, um, and they uh, they keep us they keep us on our toes. We love them. They love us now, and we hope that remains when they're in high school or college. <laughs> Call your mom. Um, and I'm a Buckeyes fan. <laughs> and a Browns fan. Sorry. <laughs> Truthfully, it's easier to be a Browns fan than it is a Buckeyes fan because you have no expectations whatsoever. <laughs> they win four games, you're like, we just went to the Super Bowl. <laughs> the Buckeyes, you you know, have this false hope. You believe that they're a good team, and then they just break your heart here. But... Um, on to, the, on to the reason why I'm here, not to promote Buckeyes football, um, but to open through the word of the Lord for you. So I want to uh, invite you guys to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Uh, I'm going to read verse 23 and a couple of verses after that. Um, as you're turning there, though, uh, I want to tell you a little story. It's actually not a little, a little long, but um, several years ago, my wife and I took a vacation to Cancun for our five-year anniversary. And while we were there, one of the things that we had a chance to do was to get away and to visit the ancient city of Chichen Itza. Anybody heard of Chichen Itza? Mean anything to anybody? No? Alright, well, it's the capital city of the Mayan Empire. Anybody ever heard of the Mayan Empire? Back there in, I don't know, mid high or something? I've heard it before 2012. <laughs> so, um, but uh, Chichen Itza was the capital city of this, of this ancient empire, you know, down in kind of central Mexico. And a thousand years later, you can go and you can still kind of travel around the city. Um, look at all of the sites. There's a bunch of temples still standing. There's an amphitheater. There's even this sports arena um, that they have that you can see there. And uh, it's kind of cool. You know, I kind of I felt a little bit like Indiana Jones while I was there. Um, it's a little exciting. No Nazis chasing me uh, or anything. But uh, but it, but as thrilling as it was to kind of stand on this ancient ground to see these ancient sites that, I mean, have, have stood there for centuries, as exciting and as thrilling as that was, it was pretty chilling and really heart-wrenching to hear the stories that kind of went along with all of these buildings. Whether it was the temples or the amphitheater or the sports arena, pretty much every single one of these sites at the heart of what they were intended for was human sacrifice. Now, on the ground that I was standing upon, the stones that were in front of me 
the blood of not just hundreds, but literally thousands of people at one point was spilled. You know, and, and these stories, as I listen to them, as horrendous as they were, um, in one sense, they shouldn't have surprised me. Uh, you know, for centuries, pretty much all pagan religions are built around the exact same principle. They're all built around the idea of sacrifice, and oftentimes, human sacrifice was at the heart of that. But it was different kind of when I was standing there. You know, all of a sudden, it was real. It wasn't just something that... I learned about in junior high or that I saw in a Hollywood movie. Uh, it was there. I was there. And uh, kind of these, these pagan religions, across, the, across time, across the world, have almost universally taken the same form. Um, maybe you read about Greek culture or Roman culture or something like that. But a lot of, the, a lot of those sorts of myths, those, those mythologies, they all work the same way. Pretty much what life was like was that there's, there's various gods, right? There's a whole bunch of different gods. Uh, and none of them really enjoy absolute dominion or have absolute power or authority over anything. But all of them are strong enough and they have just enough ability to make our life as people either bearable, miserable, or wonderful, or something in between, right? And these gods, if you think about it, if you remember back to Greek mythology or Roman mythology, you'll remember that these gods typically aren't very nice either. Their temper is terrible. They take offense at the smallest thing. They're jealous, they're petty. And life under these pagan religions was pretty much uncertain, to say the least. You know, it's kind of like living, maybe, with an abusive father, or, or, or someone, someone in your home or in your life, who you knew was able, at any moment, to fly off the handle, for any reason. You didn't know when it was coming, you didn't know why it was coming, you just knew that around the next corner, it was going to be there. And that was what life was pretty much like. In Chichen Itza, and many other places around the world. And so pagan religion not only kind of told, uh, looked through life through, uh, through this worldview, but it also presented one solution to this problem, the problem of living with and living under angry gods. And the solution was called propitiation. And basically how it worked was you offer a sacrifice in the hope of diverting the gods' wrath, of earning their favor, of making them happy with you. And if they're not happy with you, at least getting to the point where they're not angry, where you're not afraid. And the general rule of thumb for these sacrifices went, the bigger the better. Right? And so if you really want to make sure that the gods are happy, if you're smart, and you offer something really valuable, like your child. This practice called propitiation, propitiation literally means to turn away, to divert, 
or to appease the wrath of God. That was life. That is life for so many people. You and I might not offer sacrifices. I don't think anybody in here has ever slit the throat of a goat or cracked the legs of a, a lamb or done any of those things. Right? But strangely enough, you and I go about our days doing largely the same thing. We're perpetually worried. Perpetually worried that God's angry with us. So we go through our life trying to come up with things that we can do to appease God's anger. Trying to find ways to keep him happy or at least to simply keep him off our back. Does that sound like your life at all? Maybe, maybe not. But what I wanted to submit to you this evening is that that sort of attitude when we find it creeping into our hearts, when we find it creeping into our minds, when we hear it being taught, or we read about it, what we need to understand is that that attitude is completely foreign to the gospel. It's completely foreign to the message that we have in the Bible. And so that's what I want us to consider uh, just uh, for a little bit this morning. And, and, and as long as that attitude kind of lurks in our hearts, this feeling that we have to do something, we have to jump through a certain amount of hoops in order to keep God happy, as long as that's at work in our heart, it really prevents us from experiencing the freedom and experiencing the joy that the gospel is all about. And that's offered to you and that's offered to me in Jesus Christ. And so, if, uh, if you're in Romans, uh, go ahead and look down at your Bible. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can listen. Uh, as I read it, I'm going to read verse 23 through verse 26. It's um, the word of the Lord. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. There's that, there's that word. As a sacrifice of atonement by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, in his patience, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for the simple mercy that you would show us in giving us your word, in revealing yourself to us through the pages of this book. 
and most supremely through the person and work of your Son, Jesus. Lord, we do ask that you would give us eyes, that we would be able to see you more clearly this evening. Lord, that you would give us hearts that are able to rest upon you and to receive you. And we ask this in the name of your Son. Amen. So, as I alluded to before, you know, the Bible, in place of a cluster of pretty much petty and jealous gods who are obviously made in our image, the Bible presents us with one, with one true and living God. The creator, the sustainer of all things. A God in whose image you are made. A God with whom there is no bad temper, there's no capriciousness, there's no vanity, there's no unpredictability. A God whose very character and attitude is consistent and a God who reveals himself from beginning to end as one who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. A God that the Apostle Paul tells us is love. Yet, despite all of this, the idea of propitiation, the need, your need, my need, to have the wrath of an angry God remains at the very heart of the gospel. How in the world does that work? I'm going to try to answer that as we move forward. I really want to begin, I'm only going to make two points tonight. The first point that I want to make, the place where we have to begin, we have to understand that God's wrath, His wrath against sin, is real. Our text opens, you'll notice, in verse 23, and Paul says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In fact, the book of Romans, if we went back even farther and looked in the very first chapter, the book opens by declaring that God's wrath is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Scripture is filled with admonitions to fear the Lord, with warnings that it's appointed once to die and then the judgment. And this is problematic for us, is it not? When Scripture presents us the fact that one day we will stand before a holy and righteous judge. And the reality is, whether or not we want to admit it, we have all sinned. All, every last one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Me, Sid, Tim Tebow, Mother Teresa. <laughs> I do put Sid and Tim Tebow pretty much in the same <laughs> And notice I actually listed Sid first. <laughs> but we're all, we're, we're all in the same company together. Every single one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Whether you've sought to do all the right things or all the wrong things, whether you grew up blessing the Lord 
or cursing him. Apart from Christ, we all stand in the exact same place before God. Condemned. We're all by nature children of wrath, Paul actually tells us in the book of Ephesians. Now, for some of you, I imagine that this, this reality, the reality of God's wrath, the depth of your own sin, is probably all too real. You feel dirty. You feel defiled. You know the weight of guilt, the reality of shame. And perhaps your struggle this morning is to believe that God could ever love you. He could ever forgive you. He could ever see past, even for a moment, all of those things that seem to define you. You know, for others of you this morning, you may be in a radically different place. Struggling to see, struggling to acknowledge, and struggling to feel the depths of your own sin. And if that's the case, then the easiest thing to do is just turn to your neighbor and they'll be pretty quick to point it out to you. <laughs> Remind you how messed up you really are, how messed up I really am, when we don't want to admit it to ourselves. But most of us, I imagine, probably are sitting here tonight, on some level, aware of our sin. But really unconcerned, we go throughout our days rather thoughtlessly about that reality and living unaware of God's judgment, of the fact that we live, we act, we speak in the presence of a holy God. Many people struggle to understand, even go so far as to deny that a loving and a gracious God could at the same time be wrathful. That he would judge men. That he would judge us for our sin. And part of the problem, is, I think, is that, you know, we, we typically think of wrath as kind of this, it's like a bad word, isn't it, in our culture, wrath? I mean, it's okay to be angry, but, but you're not allowed to be wrathful, right? And when we think of wrath, we kind of think of like this irrational, this completely uncontrolled, this disproportionate flood of anger, right, that just comes out. Um, you know, one time I was, I was over at Starbucks and accidentally bumped this guy and the lid of his coffee was off, it spilled all over his arm, it was hot, it hurt, I understand. Um, but, but all of a sudden, I mean, he just turned on me. I was in the middle of Starbucks, there's like customers around, and the, the baristas are behind the, the counter, and he just unleashed on me this torrent of anger, this torrent of curse words, you know, for bumping his arm. and. Uh, you know, I didn't know what to do. I was stunned. You know, I was like half frightened and half just like, this is hysterical. <laughs> I was like going to cry or laugh. Or, um, but, it, but it was completely uncontrolled. It was completely irrational, completely unjustified um, for what just took place. Um, his reaction didn't match 
the severity of my offense in that moment. You know, perhaps you've known people like that. Perhaps you've lived with people like that. Um, perhaps you grew up in a home where you, you literally walked around on eggshells, not knowing what the next thing that was going to set your dad off was going to be. And we need to understand that when Scripture speaks of God's wrath, that's not what the Bible means by wrath. God's wrath is altogether appropriate. It's a measured response to human evil. It's not the unpredictable response of some jilted guy up there in the sky, but it's the right response of a good and a holy creator towards those who would spoil his creation, to those who would trample other people. Let me ask you the question, would God still be good if he overlooked wickedness and evil in the world? Would God be righteous if he took as much delight in evil as he did in good, as he does in good? And I think that we'd all answer, of course not. You know, the wrath of God is real. And we have to understand that that wrath, the promise of judgment, is actually an extension of his holiness and his love for his creation. Every single one of us, at some point in our life, has to come to terms with that reality. We are men and women who deserve the wrath and judgment of God. Every single one of us. But thank goodness there's a whole lot more to the story, right? There's a whole lot more to our passage. The gospel's good news. Scripture not only declares that the wrath of God is real, but it also declares that the wrath of God, this is the second point, the wrath of God against his people, against you and I, Gone. It's gone. It's completely removed. This is what makes the gospel so amazing. This is what we talk about when we talk about salvation. The gospel is a message of forgiveness. It's a message of pardon. A message of freedom. From the worst predicament we could ever imagine. And so you'll notice if you look back down at the text that Paul's going to say in verse 24, right after uh, reminding us of our own sin, he says that we, those of us who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. To be justified as the text says. To be justified simply means that you are declared righteous. You are declared not guilty. And Paul says that's a gift. That's a gift from God. That in Christ, God would look at his people. God would look 
upon you. No matter what sin marks your past, he would look upon you and he would say, not guilty. Innocent. Now the question is, how in the world does this happen? How can a just God acquit guilty sinners, right? How is he able to be both just, Paul asks, and the one who justifies the ungodly? If a human judge, you know, let a guilty criminal go, we wouldn't call him just. We wouldn't call him anything but just. That would be unjust. So God doesn't simply ignore our sin. He doesn't look past it, act like it's really not that big of a deal. You know, it's not like he kind of, we, I don't think we got to the New Testament, God kind of scratched his head and said, you know, why was I so concerned about sin for all these years? Why have I really been such an angry guy? Um, it's time to put the happy face on. I mean, that, that, that's, not, that's not how he deals with us in our sin, and I'm, I'm thankful for that. You know, he doesn't just sweep it under the rug or pretend like, he didn't see it. That, that's my move as a parent, right? When I don't want to discipline my kid, I'm like, no, I don't know that you smacked your sister in the face. I'm too lazy. Um, I can't hear you crying. Busy watching TV, right? I mean, God doesn't ignore our sin. He doesn't ignore the injustice that's done to you, nor the injustice that you do to other people. What scripture declares is he actually places that sin, the guilt of that sin, the punishment for that sin, upon his son. That's what the cross is all about. And without an understanding of God's wrath, the cross really makes no sense at all. And so in the very next verse, um, verse 25, you'll notice that Paul goes on, and we're told there that God put Christ forward as a propitiation for our sins. Remember, propitiation simply means to remove, to pacify the wrath of God. To satisfy God's wrath. God made propitiation. For our sins in the most startling way, didn't he? By placing the guilt and the judgment and the punishment of that sin upon his very own son. If you want to see the ugliness, if you want to see the costliness, if you want to see the depths of your sin, then you really need to look no farther than the cross. Jesus died in order to pay the penalty. The penalty in full for your sin. Now, that should be one of the most remarkable statements that we've ever heard. But the good thing is, or the bad thing is, that most of us have heard it for years, right? And so it, it kind of loses its luster. Oh yeah, we get that. But remember Genesis 22? Um, it's what we read at the very beginning of the service. Um, and, and in many respects, I don't, I don't know if you guys felt this way, but for growing up, Genesis 22 made like no sense whatsoever. 
Like, why in the world is this in the Bible? God tells Abraham to go and to sacrifice his son, right? I mean, it literally, I was like, this makes no sense. I don't get why this is here. I don't get why God would do this. God commands Abraham to do something that you and I find unfathomable. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land that I will show you. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on the mountain that I will show you. You know, this sort of request, it just absolutely jars us. We don't really have a category through which we're able to think about it. But think now. Go back to Chitsunitsa. And think for a moment about the original audience of this passage. About the world in which Abraham grew up. Abraham grew up in a pagan land. God shows up, calls Abraham to himself, away from the worship of pagan gods. And now, in Genesis 22, God is about to reveal to Abraham something amazing. Something that is just going to blow Abraham's So he asked Abraham to do something that, at the time, was actually pretty common. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt sacrifice on the mountain that I will show you. And I can only imagine that Abraham's kind of like, yeah, I've, I've seen this one before. I know how this story ends, right? But yet Abraham, after his time that he spent with the Lord, marches up the hill convinced that God will provide. Up to this point, if you were a Canaanite, if you were an Egyptian, if you were a Mayan, if you were an Aztec, this story would seem pretty normal. This is how the gods are supposed to behave. Go, take your son up on that mountain, make me happy. Right? We even read the verse 1. He says, God tested Abraham. Right? I want to find out if you're really committed to this whole thing. If you're really committed to me. And the truly shocking part isn't what God asked Abraham to do. The truly shocking part is what actually happens next. The Lord reveals that he's nothing like the pagan gods that Abraham is used to. He's nothing like the petty, angry, selfish pagan deities. And so Abraham obeys, right? He builds the offer. He binds his son. He places him on the wood. He takes the fire in one hand. He takes the knife in the other hand. And all of a sudden, the most dramatic and amazing revelation is made. We need to feel the tension of this moment. Abraham is there with the knife in his hand, his son bound in front of him. He's ready to obey. And the angel of the Lord cried out, Abraham, Abraham, do not lay your hands on the boy or do anything to him. And Abraham looked behind him and what does he find? He finds a ram, right? And the narrative ends with these words. So Abraham called the name of the place 
the Lord will provide. And it is said, even to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. You know, God didn't test Abraham in order to find out just how far Abraham was willing to go to obey. He tested Abraham in order to prove to Abraham just how faithful he was. That right there is one of the most remarkable revelations of God's character in all of Scripture. He wants Abraham. He wants us to get it. He's nothing like the petty gods. He's nothing like the jealous pagan gods. God is unlike anything that you and I, unlike anything that Abraham could have ever imagined. He's gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And He... He will provide the sacrifice. And at that time, God gave Abraham a ram, but the ram simply pointed forward to a better sacrifice, did it not? And here in Romans 3.25, we're told what that sacrifice was. God put him his very own son forward as the sacrifice in place of Abraham's son in place of my son he put his own son forward as the sacrifice as the atonement that's amazing is it not? And that should absolutely astound us. That God would put his very own son forward as a propitiation. On the cross, all God's wrath for the sin of his people was poured out on Christ. So what does this mean? What does this mean for us as we come before God? The biggest thing that I want you to take away as you think about this tonight is that if you've placed your faith in Christ, God is no longer angry. There's not a single drop of wrath left to be poured out of these people. God is not angry. He's not angry with you. He's not angry with me. Tim Tebow or Ian Sid. <laughs> the guilt of every single one of his people's sins was poured out on his son. Paul declares a couple chapters later here in Romans that there is therefore now no condemnation. How much condemnation? None. Zero. Zilch. There, there's no more condemnation. He delights in you. He delights in you. God's wrath against sin is real, but God's wrath against his people has been removed. That's the reality of the gospel. That's the meaning of propitiation. Rather than requiring Abraham or any of us 
to offer our only Son whom we love, Scripture declares that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, the one whom He loved. The problem is, the reality is, that most of us don't believe this. We can't imagine that God would be so good, that God would be so kind, that God would be so compassionate and so unlike pretty much anyone that we've ever met before. To the point where we don't have to do anything. We don't have to jump through any hoops in order to earn His favor, in order to get Him off our back, in order to make us like us, make Him like us, or make you like yourself. I guess that reminds too. You are more loved than you can ever believe through Christ. You join me in prayer. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much that in your love you would put your Son forward as a sacrifice for our sin. We thank you that we are able to stand justified confident before a holy God, not because we are righteous, but because we know that there is now, no, therefore now, no condemnation. Lord, we do pray that you would teach us to live in the freedom of your gospel. Lord, we pray that you would delight us with your gospel. We ask this in your name. Amen.